Welcome to Friday. Welcome to Week in Review. Great to have you along with us for this hour together where we sit down or stand, I suppose, and figure out what happened this week and what it all means with my panel of journalists. I'm Bill Radke. I'm the one bundled up this week. If you're watching us online on YouTube or Facebook, you just search KOW Public Radio there, and you can wave hello to Seattle Times mental health reporter Esme Jimenez. Esme, welcome back. Great to see you. Hello. Thanks for having me. Thank you for the wave. Public Cola Police Accountability Reporter Paul Kiefer. Welcome back, Paul. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Crosscut, editor-at-large, host of the Mossbacks Northwest, Knut Berger. Hey, Knut. Hey, Bill. Uh, we, uh, we had a dramatic weather week. Power poles and trees falling down, and there was flooding and 30-foot waves in Grays Harbor. And on last week's show, I resisted the term bomb cyclone in favor of the terms wind and rain. And, Canute, you were not there to support me, but I, I found out you're a fellow traveler on this one. Yeah, I support you in spirit. Thank you. you know, the, the newspapers now getting like the TV stations and overhyping every weather phenomenon uh, that occurs cranky old man river is coming <laughs> yeah atmospheric <laughs> river that's true atmospheric <laughs> river bombs bomb cyclone to me which is the meteorological version of uh you know, murder hornets you know <laughs> yes. anything to get the clicks oh we're cranky um i think <laughs> said pretty much the same thing last week did you hear about the cargo ship that caught fire off our north coast uh, like a hundred shipping containers fell into the ocean koow's john ryan told us that containers are now washing up on vancouver island beaches where a school teacher brought a field trip teacher jerica mcardle saw floor mats boots styrofoam inflatable toys chinese checkers even refrigerators scattered throughout the driftwood and bull kelp she called the scene shocking and overwhelming. Two other containers sat on the beach unopened, and more than 100 were somewhere unknown in the Pacific Ocean. Storm damaged some of those containers on the ship, and then some chemical powder spilled and caught fire, and a couple of the containers have toxic chemicals in them, so don't go beachcombing there for those containers, okay? The people have memories of right after the, the hurricane in, in Japan, the Fukushima Daiichi disaster, when stuff started washing up in the exact same places and there were worries that it was irradiated i don't know about irradiation but there's a, but i i know i mean there's burning tires and toxic chemicals and uh, plenty of reasons to stay away well you know they they tell you the winter is a good time to go beach combing because of all the stuff that blows in from the winter storms and you're usually thinking about you know japanese fishing floats or or that kind of thing and it's just kind of funny to think you know honey look i got a new frigidaire Yes. <laughs> Thousand rubber ducks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, today it's supposed to stop raining. Sudden clearing, like a bomb of clear skies going off this weekend. We'll have explosive clearings. <laughs> oh, uh, we'll look forward to that. You might see Aurora Borealis this week, um, I'm told. It's a, a magnetic bomb cyclone is possible, a geomagnetic cyclone or whatever that is, which I've never seen. I've never seen the Aurora Borealis. Oh, really? They're lovely. Yeah. Yeah, it's really an incredible sight uh, when you see it. Uh, it's hard to see it in Seattle unless you have a camera that can stay open and, you know, capture the light uh, just because of all the light. You, know. you can get a similar effect if you just stay up for three days straight. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be talking about psychedelics later in the program. 
Um, let's start our news review here with the with the elections. It's the final week in review before the election deadline. Canute, I know you've been wondering what happened to optimism in politics. Well, yeah, I mean, one of the striking things, looking at it just as a as a generalist, um, you know, is the sort of apocalyptic and and you know in nature of all the all the candidates. Yeah, you know the. The my my uh, my mailbox here at home is just stuffed with uh, flyers every day, four color, big pictures, warning me about this candidate, warning me about that candidate. Here's what so and so tweeted. Here's what so and so put on television. Uh, you know, it seems to me it's a particularly uh, nasty uh, type of campaign with a lot of money and these. Uh, groups that uh, can spend more than the candidates can tearing another candidate down. Um, and I, I, I mean, I can't say it's atypical in Seattle history, but I think it's at a, it's sort of at an interesting point because, and, and you know, we, we, we are in a difficult place, right? There are some really big issues that need to be dealt with in terms of policing, social justice, uh, downtown, homelessness. I mean, they're, uh, they're all connected in one way or another and need to be dealt with. Seattle's been through crises before. And the one thing, if you study that, which I have done, if you study the various crises in almost every case, the only way out is a unified big approach. In other words, everyone comes together, labor, business, uh, uh, social justice activists, and everybody gets on the same page and works through the problem. And the kind of, uh, you know, so much of what you see in the campaign uh, literature anyway, is, <clears throat> is a kind of, you know, that person is bad. Um, we're all good. Vote for my slate, don't vote for, you know, it's a very kind of Manichaean approach. And I don't think the voters um, accept that. I think Seattle voters, are are more, um, you know, are, tend to be uh, pick and choose. I mean, with local elections, you may have personal experience with a candidate, and you can say, yeah, "I really don't agree with that person a lot, but they have great character," hmm. or, or whatnot. You know, people don't necessarily vote just by these wedge issues. Esme, you were talking about the a sort of culture war when it comes to just, for example, the Seattle City Attorney election. Absolutely. Uh, there was a settlement piece that I thought kind of encapsulated that really well that was just pointing out like, listen, this is not just happening in Seattle. This is happening in communities across the U.S. where candidates to distinguish themselves move further left or move further right um, and say, you know, definitely not that guy, but this me, pick me. Mm -hmm. And then um, the other thing that I've been thinking about is just the money. Like uh, Seattle Times just had a piece that was looking at $3 million. That's what's been spent with PACs this year on these elections alone. Like what would $3 million do for community-based organizations or anything else? Yeah, PACs, uh, political action committees. And, and Paul, since we're, we're talking about the city one attorney- second, One second, one second, Okay. Hold on, I'm having, I'm having a, a background noise thing. Okay, we're, we're dealing um, with- Oh, Lordy. There we go. Okay, okay. sorry. Back so, on. Uh, <laughs> regarding the Seattle city attorney's, uh, city attorney election, um, we were talking about this. Can, can, so the candidates are very different, uh, which maybe you can recap. But I'm wondering, will, can either of these different candidates 
make the city attorney job as different as they as they say they will? Well, on some level, a lot of it will come down to uh, how much the city council thinks that it can it can you know imp- impose X or Y policy goal onto an independently elected office. And the way that you know the the thing that we're looking at right now that came up in this in this budget amendment process is uh, diversion, which means the it's it's a part of the city attorney's criminal unit that uh, deals with trying to track people out of court or out of out of prosecution. Paul, um, just for those to, th- Paul, for those not following it as closely as we are, maybe we should set up that one candidate wants a far more aggressive prosecutorial stance in the city attorney's office than the other very different right like the 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 key issue in the city attorney's race is whether to prosecute more more misdemeanors or to direct more things to diversion to to diversionary programs like lead or choose 180 and the you know uh, in the case of, of ann davidson who's who's uh more skeptical of diversion particularly for adults um it it the question on the mind of the city council right now who actively supported this diversion program for for years you know since 2017 um is whether the they can as a city council uh force the city attorney's office to keep those programs alive because right now it's entirely voluntary pete holmes has agreed to these things on a voluntary basis so what they're trying is is a, a budget tool called the proviso which would restrict a certain portion of the city attorney's budget to spend on diversions and they are hoping that that coupled with adding diversion to the city attorney's duties in this in the city code would guarantee that these programs survive but provisos aren't perfect tools you can still you know if 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 a future city attorney just outright does not want to support x program they can just not spend the money instead of spending it elsewhere which they legally can't do so you know the it it's hard for uh, it is an independently elected office at the end of the day, and there are only so many things that other um, branches of city government can do to influence the others. Um, it, it does need to, you know, if it, it, it would ideally operate harmon- harmoniously, but it, it is three separate branches of government. When it comes to Washington state politics, our only Republican statewide office holder, I think the only Republican statewide office holder on the West Coast is leaving us for Washington, D.C. This is our Secretary of State, Kim Wyman, going to the Department of Homeland Security. Knut, is Governor Inslee going to replace Wyman with another Republican? I doubt it. Um, And uh, I'm not sure that's in his nature. Um, But it's important, I think, that he replace her with somebody who can act on a nonpartisan basis. And, and, you know, if, if, if you believe Twitter, you would believe that there aren't any more people who can do that. Kim Wyman is an example of somebody who uh, has been able to do that, as have many of the previous secretaries of state uh, in this state. And uh, I think that's going to be very important for, um, you know, credibility. I mean, the, the idea that he should replace a Republican because she's leaving, as some, as some Republicans have said, of course, they're going to say that. But that's just not the way the system works when the governor has the power of appointment. But I, I thought it really served Canute, I thought it served the Democrats very well to be able to appoint to point to a Republican secretary of state, you know, election official who supports vote by mail and who says the election wasn't fraudulent. I, I thought maybe a Republican in that job is, is good for the Democrats. Yeah, the problem, I think, is probably finding that Republican. Um, <clears throat> uh, I think they've become 
fewer, you know, the era that produced uh, so many Republicans that were elected to statewide office uh, of that kind are now a, a very small minority, I believe, within the party or within the party apparatus, certainly, which has been, uh, you know, heavily Trumpified. And, uh, <clears throat> and, and even, even having a Republican at office, uh, you know, she's faced lawsuits from Lauren Culp, the uh, fellow who, uh, the, the losing uh, in, in the governor's race, uh, and he's embraced the sort of Trump uh, falsehoods about uh, election being stolen and whatnot. Republicans have been unhappy with other Republicans in that office in the past. So uh, I think it's very important to find a, a person who has credibility with both uh, parties as far as that is possible these days. Yeah. Okay, well, people are, of course, voting right now. I'm, I'm done voting. You may well be. And uh, your deadline is the second Tuesday coming up here. Um, that's elections. We're going to discuss more of what's going on in the news, what happened this week, and what it all means as we continue with the Week in Review. And we are going to be right back with Esme Jimenez and Paul Kiefer and Knut Berger. Don't go away. This is Bill Radke. I just turned my light on in my spare bedroom here. Was that was that a huge difference? Can you see me way more now than before? There on uh, oh. Facebook, a little bit. KU, uh, we, let's see, we're on YouTube, we're on Facebook. Use the search KUOW Public Radio, and you'll find me with the public holus Paul Kiefer and Crosscuts Knut Berger, and the Seattle Times, Esme Jimenez, uh, SBU report on mental health at the Seattle Times, and uh, one of the stories you're following is the use of psychedelic drugs like psilocybin mushrooms, which the Seattle City Council does not want to prosecute as a crime. Uh, what do, um, what, what's the story? What, what do psychedelics do for one's mental health? Well, there's lots of research that stems back to the 50s, actually, very early, looking at the way that it can actually help people in different levels of crises, whether that's post-traumatic stress disorder and soldiers, vets, whether that's people um, going through severe depression or anxiety, like it's incredibly, incredibly helpful um, when used in a therapeutic model. And so what I've been seeing and tracking is the number of both biotech companies that are starting to invest in Vancouver, Portland, Seattle, and setting up shop here locally, um, the kinds of clients that they're going to potentially get. And then also the research that's happening here at the University of Washington kind of studying this. Right now, there's actually... Um, a team that's working between a private public partnership with UW, and they're actually trying to figure out, you know, can we help burn out with uh, a lot of the staff that worked on COVID, a lot of those frontline workers, like, can we actually make sure that they don't burn out in their work through therapeutic models like psychedelics? Um, it's yes. still on the first trials, but we'll learn more in the coming months. Do we understand how the psychedelics work? For example, um, how they compare to the way that the typical uh, depression targeted pharmaceuticals work do, do we understand the mechanism yet totally and it's pretty nippy like it's a bunch of different things uh -huh. um that i don't particularly want to go into but the, okay. the rough idea is there's neural pathways that are created while you're going through the psychedelic experience so you're able to make uh actual new pathways in your brain and that can actually provide healing in some cases for people where again either post-traumatic stress disorder any kind of trauma, frankly, um, is now being able to be reconnected in a helpful healing way. And it helps people communicate actually what happened to them. Hmm. Paul, you've paid some attention to this. Do you?
see psychedelics as a new medical frontier, uh, helping the right people? I mean, I've paid attention to it in the sense that I pay attention to, you know, the decriminalization of any controlled substance. But at the moment, I think what's you what's are on the my police accountability. Is- Paul is the police accountability reporter <laughs> at Public Health. Right. Yeah. And I, it, but I think what's what's at the front of my mind, and I think I have a question for Esme, is that you know, at the moment, I kind of perceive psychedelics as, as sort of boutique drugs, and um, I don't know if there's you know the thing that would kind of be the the make it or break it in terms of turning psychedelics into a more widely available form of of therapeutic you know therapeutic option for people with mental and behavioral health disorders would be whether there's an economy of scale that can you know whether you can whether you can scale up production of of um psychedelic drugs in in general to uh, make them accessible to people who are you know extremely you know, extremely vulnerable and also don't have the money to participate in sort of a boutique market. I mean, it's like, you know, it w- would that then require the cooperation of large pharmaceutical companies to who have the resources, you know, and, and capital to, to launch kind of yeah. a large scale manufacturing operation? Absolutely. I know exactly what you're talking about. And that's kind of the interesting thing that's happening in the Northwest right now. I posit we're kind of where uh, marijuana was, you know, 10, 15 years ago. I feel like that's where we are right now with psychedelics. And the two things that I'm seeing specifically is that one, uh, mushrooms are free and they're in the Northwest. Like we just have them growing naturally here. You know, you can actually see people coming after a rain, um, looking on the ground and searching for them if they know what they're looking for. There are Facebook Mm -hmm. groups online, Reddit groups online that know how to look for these and will support each other and actually being able to access them. So they're, they're free in that sense, or someone could actually grow them in their home. Uh, with actual companies that are trying to play with psychedelics, they're trying to actually change the dosage, how long you are experiencing your actual high, right? Rather than having six, eight hours, it might actually only be two hours if they're able to change that chemical compound. And we might actually be able to um, tailor it specifically to only provide visuals or only do X. And so that's kind of the idea with biotech companies, that they could really tailor your psychedelic experience. Canute, any thoughts on this? Well, honestly, I haven't given psychedelics a lot of thoughts. since the late 1960s uh-huh. uh, and probably gave them too much thought back then. Mm. But I think that um, the, the possibilities in terms of mental health treatment with uh, mushrooms or whatever, um, I think is really worthy of continued study. And you, you have also a lot of, uh, you know, experience that people have in understanding uh, how some of these work have for centuries. And, um, you know, the, the fact that they may have, uh, you know, more kind of medical or clinical uses and could be engineered in a certain way, I think is really interesting. I'm not sure we're quite ready for everything to be legal and, and uh, you know, sort of on the streets. Um, but, uh, you know, it sounds like very, very, very promising research. I do want to make a mention of a new book that's out. It's a biography of a guy named Al Hubbard, who was a young man, was sort of a young techie who helped uh, during Prohibition, helped uh, in bootlegging. And he later uh, became like the apostle of psychedelic drugs uh, in, in the 1950s and got his hands on stuff early and, and uh, you know, was buddies with Timothy Leary and all kinds of people. But uh, it's a really interesting book about the history of psychedelics. Hmm. Uh, so wrapping this topic up, ask me anything else we ought to know. What comes next? How serious the decriminalization move is in Seattle or just what else you're working on? Anything? 
There's a couple of things. So I know, for example, December 7th, there's supposed to be an event from the Entheo Society. So this is a group of people that are kind of working with some of the folks that were in Port or in Oregon, pardon me, who were looking at how exactly do we bring this to the state legislature? Um, how do we control it? How do we talk about it? What kind of laws should be there so that in 2023 or in 2025, you know, psychedelics can actually be purchased legally for therapeutic processes or for personal reasons. So I will have more on that for sure in the coming weeks. Very good. Looking forward to that in the Seattle Times. And um, we'll talk about another health uh, issue, the COVID-19 pandemic, in just a moment. But, Paul, because we were talking about decriminalizing things and you being the police accountability reporter, um, what's going on with the is Seattle police no longer doing, quote unquote, minor traffic stops? What's the news on that this week? Well, the news is that the Office of the Inspector General, you know, back in May, recommended that SP to begin phasing out minor non-criminal or misdemeanor traffic stops, things like, you know, driving with an expired license. Um, and this week, uh, the Inspector General, Lisa Judge, and uh, the interim Seattle Police Chief, Adrian Diaz, sent a memo to the City Council and to stakeholders um, announcing that uh, the Seattle Police Department is signing on, at least in theory, to the plan to start ramping down a, a swath of minor ramping down enforcement of a swath of minor traffic violations by the end of the year. There isn't a concrete plan for what those violations it will be exactly. So, you know, the, the department will need to come up with some way to um, enshrine this move in policy. Uh, so whether that means, you know, coming up with a, a new chunk of the manual that describes how to handle um you know, traffic stops involving X and Y, you know, X and Y misdemeanor infraction, you know, or whether it means just sort of some sort of dictate from above, we don't know yet. But one way or another, it's a signal that the police department has, has bought into the notion that it, it this is one way to reduce the number of civilian police interactions, which is really the, the goal of all of this. It's not to affect the city's revenues from civil fees. It's to reduce the number of interactions between drivers and uh, police officers that can, in some cases, escalate to shootings like, you know, Diocia Falatogo's death on, on Aurora a few years back, um, mm. which started as a minor traffic stop. Um, but, you know, the the other big, you know, challenge in the way of all this. Okay, so I'll, I'll yeah, other, did I hear you have another question? <laughs> uh, I, I, well, I was wondering, you, you kind of touched on this, but when I hear about police deprioritizing something, uh, but when it's not spelled out, wait a minute. So what, what's not? Uh, it, it makes me wonder how are individual officers going to make those kinds of judgments about what's minor or what's worth stopping someone for or not? Um, it sounds like you're saying we we just, we don't know that that clarity. That's out. yeah. So it, the commitment that came out this week is still still leaves that kind of uncomfortable gray area, right? It's it's a you know, we, we don't entirely know what the, the directions to officers will be. We just know that in theory, we can expect them by the end of the year. Um, but for the time being, yeah, there's no there's no clear guidance for officers on, you know, what should be considered minor. Um, there's also no clear guidance on, you know, for instance, if the city needs to keep revenues from from minor civil infractions, whether that means just mailing people citations um, more frequently instead of, you know, giving the citation in person. Um, 
initially officers actually, you know, when, when Lisa Judge first made this recommendation back in May, the Seattle Police Officer Guild, the uh, Officers Guild's re uh, reaction was, you know, the Inspector General is calling for an end to traffic enforcement in general. And they were saying that, you know, they were the police department was going to stop doing DUI stops, that kind of thing. Um, that's off the table. That wasn't even the intention to begin with. But there, it, it did create some confusion. And, um, and I think that confusion is yet to be resolved. Hey, Paul, isn't there a problem, though, when you make these things discretionary? I was thinking uh, back to earlier about the city attorney's office. You know, uh, the people of Seattle voted uh, on an advisory thing to uh, tell the police not to enforce marijuana laws. This was before marijuana was legalized. And, and, and so it was a message to the then city attorney not to arrest people for for marijuana and the police refused to follow that. They continued to enforce the law and they made the argument then that, you know, if the law's on the books, you know, we need to enforce it. Shouldn't there be a change by statute on these things rather than a whole series of guidelines and recommendations that, you know, where you're giving the, the police the excuse not to enforce laws that, uh, you know, they don't happen to like. This was an argument that also came up when current King County uh, uh, executive candidate Joan Nguyen introduced kind of a Hail Mary bit of legislation at the end of the last uh, legislative cycle to scale down minor traffic stops too. Um, yeah, I mean, the question is, can you just take things like uh, expired license infractions off the books, as opposed to, I mean, we already have these sort of intermediary fixes where, you know, for instance, uh, the city, this uh, city's municipal court has a program specifically to offer diversion to, for, for people who are arrested on quote unquote driving while poor, you know, violations or not arrested, but, you know, cited for quote unquote driving while poor violations. So, yeah, I mean, I think there, there's going to be a back and forth about whether um, you should say that these things are still bad and, and say that in the form of statute, but also, you know, make this kind of push towards, you know, decriminalization purely for the sake of avoiding um, uses of force by police officers, or whether you should just, you know, decide to take things off the books entirely. But the, the latter question hasn't really been, like, confronted head on by um, the city council. And for the time being, it's sort of moot, because the department had to fold its traffic enforcement unit into patrol more or less because of the attrition over the past two years. And so it's not like these stops are happening right now in any great numbers to begin with. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Esme, any more observations or questions about this before we talk COVID? Anything to add? I just had a couple more questions for Paul in the sense that like, are there other things, other intangibles that come from traffic stops? Cause I'm thinking like, obviously I'm happy if someone doesn't stop me just because my taillight is broken or something. And maybe I didn't have enough money to fix it this week. Um, but are there other consequences that we should be thinking about? I mean, on some level, there's aside from uses of force, there's also just trust. There is, there is. Uh, I, I think at the moment, the department doesn't have, and this is a whole other story that I wrote about last week, but the department doesn't have accurate data about the demographics of people who are stopped and warned or stopped and cited. Um, mm -hmm. And so, you know, we can't give an exact number for you know, the racial disparities in traffic stops that we know that, you know, disproportionately black Pacific Islander and native people get stopped in the city. Um, and, uh, you know, reducing the number of traffic stops in an intangible sense could help increase trust. Um, at least that's, that's part of the thinking. 
Um, but, you know, beyond that, one of the things that people need to kind of work on piecing together out of the, the fragments of, of data that we currently do have on traffic stops is whether there is any correlation between minor traffic offenses and more serious things like, like DUI later on. That's, you know, that's something that we haven't, I mean, the, the likelihood of a correlation between driving with a busted taillight and driving while drunk is likely just non-existent. I, I mean, it, it, you know, but in any case, there are a whole lot of questions that will be resolved by data that we don't have in a good form yet. Okay. That's Paul Kiefer, the public accountability reporter at Publicola. And we're also talking with the Seattle Times, Esme Jimenez and Crosscuts Knut Berger. And uh, we've gone half the show without talking about our COVID pandemic, um, it's obviously still here, although um, the governor, Governor Inslee, says COVID cases, they, they, they've been falling for the last few weeks, but uh, he's concerned that that decline has plateaued and he's still concerned about a possible sixth wave of infections. So we could be seeing the start of another wave today. Do we know that for sure? We don't know that for sure, but we're concerned about it. So, in other words, the governor says get vaccinated. This week, King County businesses started requiring proof of vaccination to get inside. Uh, have any? Have you heard of, of a lot of resistance to that? I haven't heard about um, people boycotting businesses or fighting with vaccine bouncers. There must be some conflict somewhere. But uh, do you know how how you feel it's being received? And for me, at least, it seems pretty easy. I even noticed, like, I think there was one time that I forgot my card and I only had a photo of the first vaccine. And so mm. I was like, oh, is this okay? And the lady was like, yeah, I trust you. I'm sure it's okay. And let me in. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know exactly what the enforcement looks like from place to place. Um, but from what I can tell, at least going into coffee shops, bars, I went to a jazz concert uh, two weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Like it was, it was fine. The state of Washington says almost nine out of 10 K through 12 school workers are vaccinated now. I like the quote from the state school superintendent, Chris Rakedahl, talking about the unvaccinated school workers who uh, are losing their jobs. Where is it? Yeah, here's here's Rakedahl talking about those folks who decided not to get the shot. We hate to see those folks go. Um, these are folks who are clearly committed to education. That's how they got into this, but they made a tough choice for themselves, and, and I want to respect that. I want to respectfully fire you for your difficult choice. Um, Paul, do we know how many? You're the police accountability reporter. Do you do we know how many police officers Seattle's going to lose over vaccinations? So we officially on October 19th lost two, and that was kind of a womp womp moment. Um, at least you know at at the you know on October 19th, given that there were predictions that we were going to lose you know more than 100 people immediately, it it sort of seemed underwhelming. But what's sort of waiting in the wings? is the issue of accommodations. And this is something that's true across the city, not just with the police department. You know, everyone who got an, ex- an exemption from the vaccine then has to get reasonable accommodations from their department. And at the moment, every union except for SPOG, the Seattle Police Officers Guild, has an agreement with the city about how the accommodations process was supposed to work. Last week, they filed an unfair labor practice complaint with the state saying the city didn't follow those protocols because um, uh, people who had received approved exemptions um, were getting emails saying you have been denied accommodations before they'd actually had a chance to meet with their department to talk about what accommodations could look like. On SPOG's end, 
there is no agreement with the city. And so there's no agreement about what the accommodations process looks like, which means we have a hundred officers in a kind of an unclear accommodations process who have exemptions, roughly a hundred. Um, and if they don't get exemptions, which is, if, if, sorry, if they don't get accommodations, which is entirely possible, then all of a sudden the number of people who leave could shoot up um, in a way that we that wasn't immediately clear on October 19th. That isn't a guarantee, but it's sort of a black box right now. Did any of you see that city officials in Marysville and Mill Creek and Spokane are telling police officers, hey, you don't want to get vaccinated. Come work here. We're short on officers and we're hiring. And the, the governor of Florida said Seattle officers who were fired for being unvaccinated might get a $5,000 bonus for coming to that state. Yeah, there's really, I mean, the one of the challenges that the police department is going to have meeting its recruitment goals is that there is a lot of demand for police officers around the state and around the you know West Coast in general um, at other departments and the size of the recruitment classes in the uh, basic training academy in Washington haven't grown. They're, they're set by by the state legislature. And so, you know, there there are people who will likely you know, drift over to other departments and it'll be hard to uh, increase recruitment classes enough to meet pretty ambitious hiring goals. Um, so that could leave vacant that the current budget estimates haven't factored in yet. Canute, you were saying enjoy Florida. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if 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 you if you have a better uh, job offer in Florida and you feel fine about uh being unvaxxed among many unvaxxed people, you know, go for it. Uh, I just, uh, I, I, I just have a hard time th thinking of police officers uh, who say that their job is to protect and serve, not protecting either themselves, but especially not protecting the public um, by being vaccinated. And, uh, you know, the mandates of largely worked. I think they're a good thing. And if people can't abide by them, I think it's good that there's an accommodations process for people to work through. But, you know, I, I just have very little sympathy for people who uh, don't want to get vaccinated because they don't want to get vaccinated. Esme, you were pointing out the story from the Eatonville School District in Pierce County, where they say they are not going to fire unvaccinated teachers and staff. I mean, I'm curious about that to see exactly how that will play out. And with regards yeah. to the police officers, I was also just thinking about like, I wonder what the data will actually show, you know, six months from now for $5,000, um, if that budget is even there really to do that. Um, mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, kind of to Knut's point, like there are requirements in being in a society. Um, I wear my seatbelt, right? I have certain, if I said like, I don't want to use technology anymore, right? The Seattle Times would be like, okay. <laughs> I guess do something else then, right? Mm -hmm. Like there's just certain requirements in the work that we do and in the society that we are. The other thing though that I'm thinking about is even if people do leave Seattle, if they're still connected to Washington or any other community by that matter, we're still connected to each other. That's kind of the whole point, of, not the whole point, but like part of the issue with this, with this disease that we can still get each other sick, even if we're not directly living. But if we're visiting for Thanksgiving or visiting for someone's birthday, if I wanna go see manatees in Florida, like these are all things that I have to think about. Um, and I'm always just frustrated with communities when we don't remember, like we are intricately connected to each other. That is just what we've learned the last year and a half. Your choices affect me, my choices affect you, even if they're really small ripples down the river. 
still connected with each other. Uh, we're, we're, we're socially distanced again this week, but we'll be back in the same room eventually on Week in Review. That was Esme Jimenez, the mental health reporter at the Seattle Times. We've got public Publicola's Paul Kiefer and Crosscut's Knut Berger. And when we come back, we're going to talk about people detained in this state and what rights and responsibilities they have. And that's coming up when we continue here on the Week in Review. You can watch the whole thing unfold if you're on YouTube or Facebook. Just search KUOW Public Radio. And I'm Bill Radke. We'll be right back. This week, a federal jury ordered a private prison operator to pay immigration detainees minimum wage for cooking and cleaning at the Northwest Detention Center in Tacoma. Washington State has been suing the prison company on behalf of detainees. An advocate on this, Mauro Mauro Villapando, says that thousands of people who worked at this detention center are owed and deserve back pay. People don't have sentences. You know, you don't know how long you're going to be in detention while you fight your case to stay in the country. And there's absolutely nothing to do. So people end up working just to pass the time or because they actually need money. Being detained is expensive. Esme, you've been in that detention center and, and have followed this case. Paul is too. Uh, what, what, what else should we understand about this to understand this case, Esme? Yeah, I think one of the first things that I remind people is that immigration, unlike the carceral system, right, is not supposed to be punitive. People there are not being held on criminal charges. If they were, they would be in prison, right, or they would be in jail. So they're actually on administrative or civil charges. Um, The second thing is that this is a private prison contractor. Um, It's not the same thing as the Washington uh, DOC, like the Department of Corrections, right? They're, They're very different. Um, so to me, it's been interesting because this started three years ago. So to finally see this actually come to an end is really interesting. Um, yeah, that's all I'll say for yeah. now. <laughs> Paul, will this prison operator, the Geo Group, have to pay back wages, damages? Do we know? That's the judge is still considering. This is a in, in still kind of unresolved thread in federal district court, and there's also a, a class action lawsuit filed at the same time that you know was pushing for the exact same thing, which is back pay for for detainee workers who um, were not paid minimum wage. And in, 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 since the Geo Group began operating um, the Tacoma facility in 2004, and also. Um, some form of reimbursement for Tacoma community members for whom it was supposed to, the, the facility was supposed to act as a source of employment. And then the geo group began shifting um, civilian jobs to detain- detainee workers to save money. So there's, you know, they are also included as, as sort of victims of, of this, uh, in this, in this, in this case. That's very interesting. You're, 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 a, as you use the word victim, because you're they're they're undercutting your job opportunities just as a, a citizen there or a, or a, which is a, a resident yeah. there yeah which is a complaint that comes up you know around the department of corrections uh, private public partnership which is called correctional industries too i mean it, it's yeah. arisen around the issue of, of detaining labor in in private prisons and immig- immigration detention centers and all kinds of things but yeah. the other thing to remember here is that the the processing center in tacoma is is in all likelihood on its way out by 2025 the legislature voted and uh, Governor Inslee signed, uh, sorry, voted for Governor Inslee signed legislation um, 
during the last legislative session to um, end the use of private prisons and, and detention centers in Washington. And the only thing that actually applied to was the, the facility in Tacoma. Um, Geo Group is uh, suing the state to try and uh, prevent the implementation of that law, but they lost a similar suit uh, that is now in appeals in California. Um, California moved to close all private um, detention centers in the state and, and uh, a judge sided with California when Geo Group argued that the state was undercutting federal authority. Um, so in any case, it, it looks like the, the, the detention center in, in Tacoma might close within four years anyway, which would mean that everyone who's in it would have to move to other yeah. um, ICE facilities. But, yeah, ask me, didn't, you reported for KOW on the sort of the hardship for detainees and families of that happening. Yeah, absolutely. People will get moved and then there will be, you know, a completely another state, if not thousands or hundreds of miles away from their family members. Obviously, during the last year and a half, there are no in-person visitations, so they're very much limited to what we're doing now. Um, but that will certainly be an issue as well. And the only place anywhere close by that would be able to take, you know, assuming that all of California's, you know, private facilities close, the uh, only place that will remain open that is close is the Yuba County, California jail, which has 220 beds. There are an average of 840 people in the facility in Tacoma on a given night. So, um, you know, it's it, people, yeah, will not be moving to California or Oregon. It'll be a lot, a lot further away than that. Okay. So minimum wage, at least $13 uh, something an hour instead of a dollar to, uh, to, to do the laundry and uh, cleaning and food service and, and all that. Uh, Knup, anything to, to, add on the topic? No, I just, I have the trouble with the public or private institutions exploiting prisoners or detainees, uh, and especially in the private sector. I mean, there's no excuse for not paying these people wages uh, that you would pay otherwise. So I hope they get their back pay. And, uh, you know, I think, I think work in prison, um, you know, should, should, <laughs> should be rewarded. I don't think uh, you know, I think we've just reinvented people working on the rock pile uh, yeah. you know, as a form of punishment in, in a way I just don't think is appropriate. We were talking about the detention center, uh, but when it comes to prison inmates, Paul, um, will you tell us uh, some inmates have had to stop doing their jobs because they're not vaccinated for COVID? How does that work? Yeah. So, I mean, first of all, to address the minimum wage thing, it's this court decision doesn't apply to the Washington Department of Corrections. It doesn't right. apply to public institutions. Um, so in any case, on to what you're, what you're mentioning now. Yeah, I'll be putting out a story short on this. Um, kind of almost retroactively, the Department of Corrections realized that the the state's vaccine mandate applies to a portion of incarcerated workers, people who work on crews for the Department of Natural Resources to, um, you know, do trail preparations, preparations for fire season, that kind of thing, to people who work in correctional industries jobs. That's the kind of uh, spans from, you know, making furniture to cooking food and doing laundry who have, um, who work offsite. So, I don't have an exact number from the DOC yet about how many people this will impact, but for the time being, anyone who isn't fully vaccinated and fits that description is on the kind of prison equivalent of leave until, uh, and they have until December 13th to get fully vaccinated or else they lose that position. Um, this means that there's kind of an, a de facto vaccine requirement to go to one of the Department of Corrections work camps right now. Um, mm. But it's it's a bigger deal because 
the DOC is, is as you know, um, scaling down the number of people in prison and moving people to work release facilities or to um, uh, home monitoring. And that means even more interactions with the community. The vaccination rate in custody is, you know, relatively high compared to the country, but relatively low compared to like DOC staff, you know, so like 92% of DOC staff are vaccinated. And I think it's somewhere around 77% of, of people in custody are vaccinated. So there, there are risks that come with moving people into, into greater contact with community, especially because the number of, of you know, uh, work release facilities isn't growing. So they're just adding new bunks to the existing work release facilities. So, you know, it, it, it does matter to get people vaccinated right now, given that upcoming shift. Public Colas Paul Kiefer there. With, we're with the Crosscuts Knut Berger, the Moss back. And uh, Seattle Times, Esme Jimenez, th- this is the final week in review here before Halloween on Sunday, followed by Dia de los Muertos on Monday. And Esme, you were telling us about a way to observe Dia de los Muertos uh, digitally this year. Absolutely. I thought it was really cool. Uh, the LA Times actually has this lovely project where you can go in and add a frame. You can upload a photo. Um, and honor somebody that's passed away in your life. Um, to me, it's something that I did growing up physically with my family members. We would set up a little altar. We would get the little orange flowers, the sembasuchiles, which if anyone knows where some of those are, please let me know. I've been looking for more and I can't find them. Um, some bun, some bread and candles. And so to me, it was always really meaningful, specifically because we also had one where there would be a day for la anima sola, so the, the lonely soul, the idea that for people maybe don't have any family members that remember them that are still living or who honor them. We also set up something for them as well. And I think this past year, thinking on a lot of the people that have lost somebody uh, during COVID, that's something that I've also been like, I would like to honor that as well. So I've just been telling people, check that out. It's a really cool way. And the, the really intimate things that people talk about with who they remember, their mother. I saw one that was a, like, I miss my grandmother. What would I do to hear your voice again or to give you a hug? And I was like, oh, I'm tearing up. Yeah, I, I like the videos and the and the quotes. It made me want to see short. Uh, uh, it was photos and quotes. It made me want to see short videos uh, of of those folks. You know, it's a Absolutely. great idea. In the uh, I, I I'm sure that Dia de los Muertos will be observed in the metaverse, uh, which this week uh, Facebook said its new parent company name is Meta Platforms because it's so devoted to the future of gathering virtually using your avatars and, uh, and VR headsets and augmented reality glasses. And so I wondered what each, what's the first thing you're going to do in the, in the metaverse? Any idea? Can you, you're, you're shaking your head again. We're back to bomb cyclone with you. I think you're having it. <laughs> well, first of all, you know, when you describe, yeah, putting on VR glass, you know, goggles and stuff. I, I think when I was at Eastside Week in, in 1990, we put on a party that featured the same stuff. I mean, <laughs> yeah, think about it that's kind of antique. Mm. And the other thing I keep thinking about is, um, you know, you you can argue about whether there should be billionaires or not, but we have so many billionaires that are just, you know, guys who have grown up on science fiction who are now spending your money and vast sums on recreating this childhood fantasy. And so much of these fantasies are worlds that you would not really want to live in. I mean, whether it's Game of Thrones or Dune, you know, there are things where there are kings and queens and people ruling by blood and, uh, you know, and everything. And 
I just, you know, I just don't trust the, the world that, um, you know, the face, Facebook uh, folks are trying to create or recreate. Um, and so the first thing I would do is look for an exit. Ask <laughs> uh, me, how about you? First thing you're doing in the metaverse? I would definitely look. I'm I'm dumb and curious, and so I'd be like, all right, what's going on? What's happening here? Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess I would go see exactly what like a social outing would be like. Can we have parties in the metaverse? Are we all just going to be little emojis, fake drinking, like or getting real intoxicated? I don't even understand how exactly that would function, but yeah. I would try it for at least two minutes, and then I would probably do what Knut did and be like, that was good for me. I yeah. got a taste. I'm good. Things you wish you could do in, in real life. So if it's partying, I pl- I would probably take naps in the metaverse. I don't do enough of that in, in real life. So yeah, Paul, what about you? I'm with Knut. I am increasingly a Luddite. And uh, I think it is, of all the cat toys that Facebook could throw at us to try and distract us right now, this really falls short. Um, you know, I uh, like if they had offered to ship every household in America, you know, a crate of an interesting new variety of apple like i might have fallen for that mm-hmm. but um at the moment you know i i would need w- with the exception that i need to use the limited amount of facebook contact i have to reach some sources i'm i'm um very happy to stay in my my actual swamp and uh, avoid the metaverse as much as i possibly can yeah it's like zuckerberg's like well i've already screwed your democracy come to this <laughs> bill yeah other society <laughs> y'all are missing out i'm gonna take frequent naps in the metaverse i'm gonna it I, I is it quiet there do they have leaf blowers in the metaverse or that, that are gonna wake me up they have traffic I, they have mosquitoes it's terrible i'm gonna work out a lot in the metaverse because i don't do enough of that in real life i'm gonna be i'm gonna be virtually There's... ripped <laughs> i'm gonna compete for There's the title upcoming... of mr mr metaverse yes paul there's upcoming city council legislation to, to do away with at least some leaf blowers. So you might be able to get that in the universe soon, in hopefully. Real life. <laughs> real All universe. Right. All right. I need metaversal health care. Okay, we're, we're right at the end of the show here. Uh, I want to thank my guest, Seattle Times mental health reporter Esme Jimenez, Public Cola's police accountability reporter Paul Kiefer, and Crosscut editor-at-large and host of the Mossbacks Northwest. That's where I want to be. The Mossback verse, Canute Berger. Uh, always a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you, Bill. A pleasure, Bill. Great to see you. Great to see you and hear you. And thank you so much to Sarah Leibovitz and Alec Cowan, who produced this program. Thank you for the social media support and the live streaming from Tio Popescu and Juan Pablo Chiquiza. And thank you for listening on a pre-Halloween, pre-Dia de los Muertos edition of Week in Review, pre-election deadline. Get out there and vote. Mail it, take it to the, to the stuff box, and uh, we'll see you again in a week. We're going to have a lot to talk about a week from now on Week in Review.